Wednesday, April 4, 2018. This is Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Timothy Lawson. I hope everybody had a wonderful and pleasant weekend. I hope that however you spent it, it is getting a little warmer in your part of the country and the weather's getting a, uh, a little bit more predictable, although that seems to be difficult anywhere you are these days. Before we get to today's interview, I want to play a message that Acting Secretary Robert Wilkie uh, recorded uh, for uh, for VA, for its employees, for its supporters and followers um, that he just released this morning. This is his first time addressing uh, the masses as, uh, as Acting Secretary. Good day, everyone. My name is Robert Wilkie. I'm deeply grateful to President Trump for the opportunity to serve with you and for America's veterans. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the end of the war to end all wars. 100 years ago, my great-grandfather left the comfort of teaching law at Ole Miss to join the 320th Field Artillery Regiment of the 82nd Infantry Division, assembling at Camp Gordon, Georgia. Across the cantonment from his regiment was an infantry outfit whose muster roll included a reluctant scratch farmer from Pall Mall, Tennessee, by way of Buncombe County, North Carolina, by the name of Alvin York. In another part of the country was my wife's grandfather, who had probably never ventured beyond three or four counties in North and South Carolina. But by the time he was 18, he was marching up the Champs-Élysées into the terrible battle of the Meuse-Argonne. Captain A.D. Somerville, Sergeant Alvin York, and Private Onslow Bullard, ordinary Americans called upon to do extraordinary things. It is their descendants whom we are honored to serve, millions of ordinary Americans who have answered a special call for us and for the world. At my Pentagon swearing in, I was proud when the officiating officer noted that I had been born in khaki diapers. I've been privileged to see this military life from many angles, as a dependent, as the son of a gravely wounded combat soldier, as an officer in two services, the Navy and the Air Force, and as a senior leader in the Pentagon. Being with you today is the culmination of a lifetime of watching those who have borne the battle. I do not know how long I will be privileged to serve as the acting secretary, but let me tell you a little bit about my philosophy. Customer service is the key, but customer service not necessarily in the way you might think. Customer service must start with each other, not talking at each other, but with each other across all office barriers and across all compartments. If we don't listen to each other, we won't be able to listen to our veterans and their families. And we must have a bottom-up organization. The energy must flow from you who are closest to those we are sworn to serve. It is from you that the ideas we carry to the Congress, the VSOs, and to America's veterans will come. Anyone who sits in this chair and tells you he has all the answers is in the wrong business. This is a noble calling. We have a solemn responsibility to veterans, not just today, but in the months and years to come, to set the standard for the millions coming into our VA and for the millions who will join the ranks down the years. This is our important and non-negotiable mission. The President and the Congress support us, and I'm honored to help lead this organization. I look forward to meeting as many of you as possible in the coming days. I value your insights and your thoughts as we improve our department for the challenges in the years ahead. Thank you and God bless.
and we look forward to working with him until a new secretary is confirmed. Today's feature interview is with Robert Blackman. He's a retired lieutenant general uh, he, of the United States Marine Corps. He is currently the president and CEO of the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, uh, and their primary mission uh, is to preserve and promote uh, the history and heritage and uh, culture of the United States Marine Corps, specifically through the Marine Corps Museum. Uh, anybody who's been to the D.C. area knows that there are uh, museums and and different venues, galleries, stuff like that all over the place, but uh, possibly one of the best museums there are both design-wise and experience-wise is just an hour south of here in Quantico, Virginia with the Marine Corps Museum. And whether you're a Marine or not, uh, I think anybody who visits can appreciate the uh, the thought that went into that museum and the history that it holds. Uh, Robert Blackman is going to talk to us about his time in the Marine Corps, uh, the people that he served with, um, how he uh, began his position there at the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, and the value that the that the museum brings and in, in its importance to our to our military culture. Enjoy. Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go, go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. Retired Lieutenant General Robert Blackman from the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. Sir, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Um, I'm, uh, I'm anxious to, uh, you know, share my experiences with, uh, with other, other veterans. Yeah, yeah, and that's, exact, that's exactly what this program's about. Uh, we're going to start with the one thing that all of us veterans have in common, and that is the decision to join the United States military. Uh, do you remember that decision for you? Um, I do. I do. Um, when I went to college, I, uh, when I, when I first got there as a freshman, I joined the NROTC unit, um, as a contract student. I was not a scholarship student. Um, but I did that, uh, frankly, out of great respect for my dad who had been a Sailor, damage controlman on a destroyer in the Pacific in World War II. Um, and uh, I, uh, from there, you know, after uh, a couple of years um, in the NROTC unit, I made a decision to become a Marine option, um, primarily because I was extraordinarily impressed with the Marine officer instructor, and uh, I was impressed by the um, by the other midshipmen who had made that decision to become Marine options. You know, it just seemed to be they were kind of head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd, and that's where I wanted to be. So that was, that's how I became a Marine. Yeah, Semper Fi. 
Do you uh, t- tell me about a a close friend or a great leader that you had uh, in the service? And you can choose either one of them, but tell me about that person. Um, I, I yeah, I mean, somebody sticks out as uh, in my mind uh, just an extraordinary leader. Um, well, he was the uh, CEO of Eighth Marines at at uh, then Camp Geiger when I was the XO, um, and later briefly when I was the CEO of Three Eight. But um, uh, he he just to this day kind of kind of stands out uh, in my mind. He was a, a tremendous uh, student, if you will. Um, I would venture to say that at the time, maybe to this day, he knew more about um, the Marine Corps than anybody I ever encountered. Um, I mean, and I mean not just, you know, the infantry regiment. He knew he knew what was going on in MALS 26. He could have ordered airplane parts as well as you did, you know. Uh, he was just... Um, extraordinarily well-versed in all aspects of the Marine Corps. Um, and he, you know, took it upon himself um, not to, you know, give me, ex, you know, traditional XO duties, but uh, to uh, teach me uh, to be a battalion commander. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he was firm, uh, demanding. Uh, he set, he set the standards at the bar pie, expected people to get there and his kind of personal charisma and just, um, just way that he, you know, strapped on his duties every day, uh, in my mind, just, you know, motivated and inspired the young men and women around him to, uh, to, to excel. Yeah. Um, you know, the name of the name of the podcast is born the battle and, you know, not, we know that not every veteran sees literal combat, but, but we all experience sacrifices, challenges, adversities at some point in our, in our service. Um, do you have an experience like that that you can call upon and and tell us about and how you dealt with it? Yeah, I, um, you know, I mean, after 37 years on active duty, I (laughs) probably spend the rest of the day talking about, um, you know, instances, circumstances, but I would say that the most significant for me came, you know, toward the end of my service. I was the uh, CG of 3MEF in Okinawa and literally got a phone call on what was, would have been the uh, uh, day after Christmas there in Okinawa on the of 2004 and was told to form a joint task force and go provide humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in the Indian Ocean Basin following the, the tsunami. Uh, and so, I mean, that was just an extraordinary, the, the entire time, uh, but certainly though, you know, the, those days that followed and, you know, probably for a couple of weeks were, um, you know, demanding, but, um, you know, just 
incredibly motivating and focusing, you know, recognizing that we were going to, you know, have have the opportunity to take the tools of war and provide humanitarian assistance and disaster relief with them. You know, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, you know, lots of airplanes and helicopters. And so, it, you know, if I was to look back and, you know, you're sort of making me pick pick one, it would be that, um, that experience. Well, I, I, would, uh, I, would, I would be more than happy to sit down and, and talk to you about every one of those experiences, but, <laughs> I, but I'm not sure we're going to keep the listeners around that long. So. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Yeah. They have no doubt far better things to be doing. <laughs> I think I think there is you know I say that sort of uh, only half jokingly because I think there's one thing that um, that a lot of that veterans have in common is that we appreciate hearing you know the stories of of you know what other people experience in their service either through uh, because right. we, we either because I do we, yeah uh, you know I mean I frankly have experienced a lot like I said over 37 years but I enjoy I enjoy everybody's experiences sailors. You know, soldiers, airmen, marines, um, uh, lance corporals, and colonels. You know, yeah. um, I, I, you know, everybody has a unique circumstance um, that that they have lived in. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, thirty-seven years, and and I make this joke to everybody. To Any time this applies, uh, you served for thirty-seven years. I'm going to let you know that I have not done anything in life for thirty-seven years yet. So, uh, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that is a, a significant amount of time. Um, you know when. Uh, how did retirement come to you? Was it uh, was it a decision that you made? How do you just sort of reach the the end of uh, end of what was available to you? What 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 uh, prompted your retirement? Yeah, I, I yeah, um, but I think I have always viewed retirement, um, you know, as as um, you know it when you see it. Um, I. I went through the basic school with lieutenants who, you know, were successful, worked hard, made a difference, but, you know, knew right from day one that they were going to, you know, get out after three or four years and, and pursue, um, another path in life. Uh, and I, that's, you know, that's good. And, you know, when I, especially when I was the CG of second division, um, I, you know, oftentimes, you know, captains would come and talk and, you know, ask me about, you know, how I made the decision. And my answer always was, I don't think it's the kind of decision that you, you know, sit down with a white line pad and a sharp number (laughs) two pencil and, you know, draw a line down the middle and put pros on one side and cons on the other and try to try to balance them out. I, I. I think that service in the armed forces, just by its very nature, you know, tends to be emotional. You know, there are kind of ups and downs, you know, service kind of sucks emotion out of you, stuffs it in you. And um, I, I don't think, you know, it's 
the kind of decision that you make like that. My sense is you just know it, you know. Um, you know, you lace up your boots one day and you kind of go, I think it's time. It's time for me to, you know, pursue a different direction. And and I felt that way, you know, that, you know, my time had come um, and, you know, I was very proud of what I had accomplished. Um, but it was, you know, my time to take the uniform off. Always be a Marine, but, you know, just take the uniform off, as did you. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, as we know that you know, uh, transitioning out of the military is uh, you know, it's, it's a difficult experience for for a lot of veterans. Did, did you did you experience any sort of um, you know emotional dilemma or just emotional challenge in dealing with that transition out of the military? No, I I did not. Um, I, I'm I'm sure know that many do, um, um, but I I did not. I tend to. Um, not spend a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror, uh, just kind of personally DNA wise. Um, you know, I tend to, I'm a sort of a planner by nature. So I tend almost not to live in the present sometimes, unfortunately, but you know, I'm always looking out, um, to the future and, and what's next. So it did not cause that, you know, it, <laughs> people would come up to me after I retired and, you know, go, uh, you know, sir, how are you doing? You know, how, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm okay. You don't need to call the chaplain. I'll be okay. You know, um, I mean, it's, it's funny how people, you know, react and anticipate that. And for me, um, you know, I had a lifetime worth of memories, and but it was just time to, you know, point the bow in a different direction. What was your next vocation after after retirement? Well, you know, part of that ease may have been I I went um, and worked with uh, the Marine Corps MAGTAS staff training program as a senior mentor. I retired in 2007, so we were really at the height of um, you know MEF forwards and and organizations. Uh, deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, as a senior mentor, I uh, mentored staffs and, and commanders uh, through their um, pre-deployment exercises. Uh, so I stayed, I stayed in certainly in close contact with the Marine Corps, but especially with the operational forces and, um, where you know where they were headed and what they were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. So then, how did you? So then, uh, bring us forward to your involvement with the the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. How'd you uh, How'd you get selected for that? The sort of founding president and CEO, uh, you know, recognized that it was time for him to move on. He had a, accomplished a uh, you know extraordinary goal of of building the first phase of the National Museum of the Marine Corps here outside the main gate at, at Quantico. And uh, so the board uh, was looking for uh, someone to replace him. Um, I was asked um, and, and said yes. And that was 
seven years ago. Um, I mean, and it, this is, I mean, I was a Marine for 37 years, but I never did the same thing in the Marine Corps for more than a couple of years. Right. So this, you know, as you said, you haven't done anything for 37 years. Well, I've been, you know, serving in this capacity for seven years now, and it's, it's different. It's, a you know, a change from, you know, what I spent most of my adult life doing. Um, but it's, it's been, a you know, a extraordinarily rewarding experience. I've, you know, one more time I have stayed close to the Marine Corps. I interact with Marines in one capacity or another every day. Um, blessed to have a staff here who, you know, believes in our mission, which is to preserve and promulgate the history, traditions, and culture of the Marine Corps and educate all Americans in its virtues. Um, and um, we, I think, have been successful in my tenure. We um, completed the museum, doubled the size of the museum. The construction was over last April. Um, and now we're in the process of uh, the, the museum staff, if you will, the not the foundation staff, but the museum staff is in the process of uh, populating that uh, new space uh, with with the galleries that will bring the history of the Marine Corps up to the present day. Yeah, you know. So, um, tell me, tell me about the about being in the museum and watching old generation, new generation Marines coming in and seeing their museum for the first time. Um, it is generally a pretty emotional experience. Um, uh, you know, one of the one of the unique things about this museum, not only the architecture which draws people to it. But um, it is absolutely done right. Uh, you know, it is not platinum plated, but, you know, no corners were cut um, in in this museum. And that's largely because Marines built it. Um, well, we certainly have had, you know, uh, contributions, um, investments from, you know, uh, organizations or people that weren't Marines, but by and large, Marines built this, large and small, with six and seven figure uh, gifts, um, and you know, with twenty-five or fifty dollars a year, and it all matters. And I think they clearly wanted it to be done right. They wanted a place that really uh, showcased the history that they made. Um, that showcased the virtues of Marines, honor, courage, commitment, selfless service, and sacrifice. Um, and they wanted it done right. And, and that's what they got. And so uh, when they come for the first time, they're extraordinarily uh, proud. And I think it's meaningful to all veterans that there is a sort of a physical demonstration that um, of the fact that uh, whatever they did, whenever they did it, wherever they did it, um, that service is being honored here. Um, and I think it does connect the older generations, um, you know, 
today, that largely means, unfortunately, there just aren't a great number of World War II and Korean War veterans left uh, who were certainly able to travel here, but it's the Vietnam generation. And I think it, it, it connects uh, Vietnam veterans with today's Marines and with, um, with the history that, you know, your generation made in, in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, through all those years, still to this day. Um, so I think there's a, a true connection, a bond, uh, as we know, between, between all Marines, and, and the museum highlights that, magnifies it. Um, what's maybe one or two valuable things that you see the foundation doing uh, outside of the museum's walls? We accomplish our mission to preserve and promulgate the history, traditions, and culture of the Marine Corps largely through the museum. But we also have a uh, um, other uh, programs that we that we uh, actively support. One is our annual awards program. Um, which we celebrate uh, once a year at our, at our awards dinner, which this year will be on the 28th of April in the evening. But we recognize the efforts of uh, journalists, photographers, poets, authors, um, who have captured some aspect of, of what it means to be a Marine. And clearly, uh, through, their, through their work, but in the in the years ahead, it you know the vision of of the foundation um, is to like you say take the take the museum uh, outside of its walls through through various opportunities. So one is um, perhaps the the first effort will be through um, through combat art. Uh, one of the new features uh, that has come with. Um, the final phase of construction is a uh, combat art gallery. Uh, Marine Corps owns about 7,000 pieces of original art dating back to the Revolutionary War. And it is a, uh, a unique way of, of uh, depicting our history um, and the sacrifices of Marines uh, through, through that art. The problem is, you know, there are up until last June when the art gallery opened, there was very little opportunity for the Marine Corps to display that art to the American people. Um, and so now that is the case. And what we are looking at here, this, um, this current show, uh, which is really is uh, the theme of the show is that period of time that will be depicted in the new galleries uh, from the end of the Vietnam War through the present day. So, but we are, we are hoping to take um, 30 or 40 of the 100 pieces that are on display in the gallery now. We are um, hoping to put that on the road and take it across the country to art museums and art galleries and give people um, who would never otherwise uh, have any connection to to Marines or Marine history, uh, give them a taste of that uh, kind of in their own backyard. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we will look toward, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
traveling exhibits that would go to state history museums generally have a, a gallery set aside for temporary exhibits, uh, we would look to do that as well. Very well. Um, couple, uh, couple of wrap up questions. Um, first, you know, what, uh, what skill set or discipline or experience did you gain in your 37 years, uh, on it in, in the Marine Corps that you feel is contributing to your success at the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation in your position there? Um, just, uh, just from a leadership perspective, um, you know, setting, setting standard, you know, planning, um, you know, looking, looking to the future, having, having all the, uh, all the pieces in place when they need to be to, you know, keep moving forward. Um, you know, the ability to deal with, um, you know, a variety of, of different, uh, uh, people um, in different circumstances, and and not find that overwhelming. I think has has uh, has been has been very good. I mean, all of a sudden one day you're talking to architects, and the next day construction professionals, and you know, trying to raise a little bit of money from from Marines. So uh, I think I think those 37 years and what I took away from it have contributed to um some success here at the marine corps heritage foundation yeah and tell me about a tell me about a veteran or a veteran organization that you're familiar with that uh has you really excited about what they're doing right now um there are are certainly uh i don't know a, a number of them that are that are doing good things i think i think organizations that are um, and I, I know this sounds crazy. Certainly, the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation is not a veterans organization. But as I said earlier, I think it's important for veterans to see that there is an effort being made to honor their service, um, uh, and not just sort of the you know one-off, one-time kind of thing. I mean. You know, parades are great, but it happens once a year. And I, so I think, I think where there is, you know, permanence, if you will, to to the effort to uh, honor honor their service um, as a as a as a whole, as an entity, all Marines, living or dead, back to the 10th of November, 1775, through the present day, through young men and women who will tonight be standing on the yellow footprints uh, at Paris Island in San Diego. Um, I think, I think, you know, to honor that extraordinary group of men and women permanently is um, in my mind, the best way we can honor our, our veterans. Mr. Blackman, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. I appreciate your time. Appreciate your, uh, your stories of service and, 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 and telling us more about the foundation. Thank you for your service to our country and your continued service to, to veterans and, and Marines, uh, through your work at the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. Well, thank you for that and thank you for your service. Um, it all matters. It all makes a difference. When my husband came home from Vietnam, he didn't really look into all his VA benefits. 
But now I've got some health issues, and I'm glad VA is there for me. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. Big thank you to uh, Mr. Blackman for for joining us. Uh, it's always always nice to talk to a uh, talk to a fellow Marine. Uh, lots of uh, lots of pride and and, and fun conversation uh, to be had there. If you enjoyed the roundtable podcast that we did uh, with just last week, I think uh, with the women veterans uh, from DAV, SVA, and uh, VFW, um, we will be doing more podcasts like that moving forward. Probably probably once a month. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, in later April we'll be doing a roundtable on veteran entrepreneurship, and in May looking to do one on on grieving. Um, and uh, uh, of course, those are two very different uh, different topics, but uh, ones that uh, that I'm excited to uh, to get out there because I think there's some really good really good content out there, and, and there's people in this area that can really. Uh, speak intelligently uh, and and from experience on both of those topics. This week's Medal of Honor citation reading is for Ralph Johnson. Ralph Johnson was in the United States Marine Corps. He was the rank of Private First Class. He was in Company A, 1st Reconnaissance Battalion, 1st Marine Division, the conflict was the Vietnam War. Year of Honor is 1968. Citation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, while serving as reconnaissance scout with Company A, in action against the North Vietnamese Army and Viet Cong forces. In the early morning hours during Operation Rock, PFC Johnson was a member of a 15-man reconnaissance patrol manning an observation post on Hill 146 overlooking the Quan Duke Valley, deep in enemy-controlled territory. They were attacked by a platoon-sized hostile force employing automatic weapons, satchel charges, and hand grenades. Suddenly, a hand grenade landed in the three-man fighting hole occupied by PFC Johnson and two fellow Marines. Realizing the inherent danger of his two comrades, he shouted a warning and unhesitatingly hurled himself on the explosive device. When the grenade exploded, PFC Johnson absorbed the tremendous impact of the blast and was killed instantly. His prompt and heroic act saved the life of one Marine at the cost of his life and undoubtedly prevented the enemy from penetrating his sector of the patrol's perimeter. PFC Johnson's courage, inspiring valor, and selfless devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and the U.S. Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. We honor his service. That wraps up episode 93. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a rating and review so we may reach uh, further audiences and uh, get these powerful veteran stories to, to more people. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DEPT Vet Affairs and Facebook at Facebook.com slash Veterans Affairs for more stories from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.